Welcome to Sex Ed with DB. I'm your host, Danielle Bezalow. Let's get into it. Welcome back to the podcast. If you love and support the work that we do, join my crew on Patreon to win amazing prizes like our adorable merch, exclusive behind the scenes content, private sessions with yours truly, and incredible sex toys. Go to patreon.com slash sexedwithdb to join my crew. Get discounts at all of my favorite brands at sexedwithdb.com. And follow us on Instagram at sexedwithdbpodcast and on TikTok at sexedwithdb. If you want to partner with us, email us at sexedwithdb at gmail.com. Let me tell you a story about when I discovered the magic wand. I was working for a sex tech company at the time, and the CEO gave me a magic wand original as a gift. This thing looks so big and old school. I'm not sure I'm ever going to use it, I thought to myself. But when I was home alone one night with no roommates in sight, I decided to plug this puppy in and see what it could do. Little did I know, it did everything. In about 15 seconds. Wow, I thought. Boy, was I wrong. Six years later, the Magic Wand original still has a special place in my heart and my bedside drawer, so I can access it easily for whenever I need it. It feels amazing in all the right places, is super powerful, and brings me endless pleasure. Do you have a fun Magic Wand story you want to share? Go to sexedwithdb.com slash magicwand to share your story now. You can even get a discount on your favorite Magic Wand product. What are you waiting for? Here's a fact I bet you didn't know. Nearly three out of four women have experienced pain during sexual intercourse at some time during their lives. That's 75%. For some women, the pain is only a temporary problem, but for others, it's a long-term problem. I am one of those people who has experienced painful sex. Pain can happen for many different reasons, but one product that has consistently decreased my pain and increased my pleasure in the bedroom is UberLube. UberLube is a silky smooth silicone-based lube recommended by leading doctors, and its body-friendly ingredient list makes it widely used by people with sensitivities to lubricants. Another amazing thing about UberLube is that it doesn't leave a sticky residue like water-based lubes do. It lasts for a long time and doesn't stain clothing or bedding. I have three bottles of UberLube on my bedside table right now, ready when I need it. If you're someone who wants to feel more pleasure in the bedroom, use code SEXEDWITHDB for 15% off at uberlube.com. Trust me, it's amazing. Are you falling into a pattern with your partner? Looking to spice things up but aren't sure how? Me and my partner exit our ordinary with Lion's Den. Lion's Den has hundreds of your favorite brands to help you and your partner reconnect or try something new. From novices to dungeon masters, there are products for every comfort level. With 50 plus years in business, Lion's Den is here to help. Can't make it to a local store? Shop online and chat with a customer service team member while you shop. Lion's Den offers our listeners 15% off in-store and online using code SEXEDWITHDB at lionsden.com. Nancy Cardenas Pena, welcome to the show. How's it going this morning? Hi, thank you for having me. Happy to be here. Yeah, I am thrilled to have you. We have a lot to talk about. Spoiler alert, we're talking about abortion today. We're talking about policy. Uh, We're talking about Texas. We're talking about the vote coming up very, very soon. So let's get into it and not give our listeners any more time to waste here. Why don't you go ahead and introduce yourself? Tell us all about your work. Yeah, absolutely. So my name is Nancy Cardenas Peña. I'm the Texas State Director for the National Latina Institute Reproductive Justice, a long name, but we've been around for a long time. 
we've been doing this work out of Texas for more than 15 years. And so we are based in the Rio Grande Valley. And my work looks a lot like policy work. But if you know anything about Texas, it involves a lot of different things. So sometimes it's organizing, sometimes it's policy, sometimes it's advocacy. The day-to-day can look very, very, very different. But it's a love and hate relationship with my state. And so here I am, happy to talk about it. Incredible. Thank you for that background. Could you give us a little bit more information as to what the... National Latina Institute for Reproductive Justice does. And I know you mentioned you've been around for 15 years. Is that right? Yeah, 15 years. Uh, So we are a national organization, but we are based in different states. And we work at the intersection of immigration and reproductive health care. And the people that we work with, you know, struggle both with reproductive health care access and immigration restrictions. And so in order to be true to those communities, we do advocacy, organizing, policy work, you name it, at that very critical intersection. And, you know, I'm happy to talk a little bit more about why that's so important, especially in a state like Texas. But I think, you know, folks have heard bits and pieces of immigration and abortion. But yeah, we do that very, very critical work at that intersection. And so, like I said, our day-to-day can look very different. Um, We also work the legislative session, analyzing policy, and we do a lot of education in our communities in both English and Spanish, which seems to be sort of a vacuum, even in a state like Texas, around how the legislative session works, what bills are we seeing, how does that affect me, and so forth and so forth. Yeah, really critical, especially if, listener, you've been paying attention to the news lately, um, and it's not, you know, only as of late, but kind of happens all the time when it comes to immigrant crises and refugee crises and folks coming from the border and the politicians in Texas and other states who are Republicans uh, not advocating for those people. And uh, it's especially important during this time after the, you know, overturning of Roe v. Wade, that we pay attention to what's going on with those folks, how to get them the access and the care that they really need. So thank you for that explanation. Let's back up a little bit. I want to know what your sex ed was like growing up and really, you know, what made you so passionate about this work? How how did you get here? I mean... I live in Texas, in case that wasn't clear before. (laughs) Uh, So my sex ed was a little non-existent growing up. Honestly, the sex ed and sort of the responsibility of that education was left to my elders and people in my family to sort of do the basic guidelines of, you know, what sex means, what to watch out for, so forth and so forth, including what pleasure meant in all of these different conversations, which is why... You know, I feel really grateful to be in this line of work because we regularly do those sex ed, you know, education classes. And so the Poderosas, which is the group of folks that work with us, which means powerful in Spanish, they do extensive advocacy and education around that. And we mostly target the matriarchs of families, which are, you know, generally the people who are in charge of how to raise their families, how that education spreads, you know, what information comes in and out of that household. Um, But of course, everyone is welcome to join. So yeah, very, very, very different. Very, very grateful for this work. But my, yeah, my sex ed was pretty non-existent. And so, yeah, it was, it was interesting. And, you know, getting into this work and sort of like my passions for getting into this work are along those lines of like, 
you know, these services that didn't exist in the Rio Grande Valley. And, you know, so for us, uh, for my family, we have a mixed status family, you know, which meant that there are people who are undocumented in my family and there are people who are citizens. And then there are some people who are permanent residents. And so it was like a spectrum of different immigration statuses in my family. And the most common thing for all of us is that we could not access healthcare in the United States Mm. and being so close to Mexico you know, we would access healthcare in Mexico. So for those of us who are able to go back and forth, you know, we would go see doctors, get medicine. We sometimes would have to explain symptoms to the doctors that other families had just to try and get them the medicine and the care that they needed. And oftentimes it also looked like holding back that pain or trying not to worry other family members because that healthcare was inaccessible. We didn't really have a doctor to go to. We had like a government program for our healthcare, but even then that was really, really expensive. And so mm. usually it meant going to Mexico for all of our healthcare needs. And that sort of spurred me into this work, uh, right? Realizing, especially after leaving the Rio Grande Valley, that not everyone was living this way, which was like a real culture shock for me. Um, understanding that people actually did have access to healthcare within their own country and they didn't have to travel to access this healthcare. And I realized that there was so much work to be done, especially at that critical intersection of immigration and reproductive healthcare. And, you know, trying to balance people who are undocumented in my family, not having access to that healthcare, like people who are citizens. And so, you know, that really inspired me to get into this work and sort of continue it to this day. Wow. Thank you for sharing your story. First of all, I've never heard the phrase mixed status family before. That makes total sense. If some folks, as you mentioned, are undocumented, some maybe are in the process of being documented, some are already. And I think that that definitely adds to more complex family dynamics, especially as you mentioned, when it comes to healthcare and when it comes to accessing services and certain governmental things that one might need, especially as an immigrant. So I appreciate you sharing that. And it also just is bringing up for me a lot of the kind of travel and movement that other women and uterus havers in America are having to do now that Roe v. Wade is overturned and even prior, right? Like we know as reproductive health educators in this field that this is not new, that poor people, BIPOC folks, immigrants have been traveling to get their abortions for some time when their access is not available in their own state, even before the fall of Roe v. Wade. So I just think it's an important thing to note. And yeah, I just really appreciate you sharing that. Absolutely. As you mentioned, you are a very impressive title, the Texas Director for Policy and Advocacy at the National Latina Institute for Reproductive Justice. As you also mentioned, you know, this maybe involves policy stuff, maybe some advocacy, maybe some grassroots organizing. I'm wondering, like, right now, what y'all are really, really working on and what your day-to-day looks like when it comes to advocating for reproductive justice and rights in the state of Texas. Yeah, absolutely. So it's, like I said, a mixture of a lot of different things. And so right now in Texas, we have a legislative session every other year. So on odd numbered years is when Texas will enter its regular legislative session from January to May. And so that happens to be next year, which is the bulk of the work that we're doing right now is 
you know, creating those legislative priorities, both in coalition and in our community. So we are very, very grateful and we are very fortunate to work with such amazing coalition partners like South Texans for Reproductive Justice, Frontera Fund, and so many more amazing organizations for this upcoming legislative session. And so a lot of the work that I'm, you know, focusing on right now is creating that legislative agenda. You know, like, what do we want to see? What will be our priorities? Because, you know, once that first day of session starts, it's like game on. We Mm. have hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of bills to analyze, to dissect, to interpret. And my work doesn't stop there where I gain this understanding of, you know, what policies we're seeing. But it's also how am I going to translate this to the communities in both English and Spanish in a way where people who aren't involved in the intricacies of the legislative session every single day can understand what in the world is going on, you know, because I mm-hmm. think the one of the biggest challenges and one of the biggest things that we see at the state level is misinformation or lack of access to that information. And so every single step of the way, we try our best to create, you know, that communication that transparency and that access to where legislators can talk to people in the community and vice versa. And people are aware of how to get involved with the legislative process in always both English and Spanish. So always interpretation. I speak both languages, so I'm able to navigate that a little easily. But even for folks who are monolingual, um, we always have interpretation. We always bring that core tenet of language justice into our work. And so It also looks a lot like creating a community-informed agenda. So literally just going to people and asking them what they want to work on for this upcoming session. What do they want to learn more about? Like, you know, we talk a lot about reproductive health care and abortion access, but, you know, some folks really want better health care for their children. Some people want, you know, basic transportation or basic infrastructure, which a lot of areas in the Rio Grande Valley are lacking. And so, It is having all of these community-guided conversations is the biggest chunk of my work right now just to get ready for this, like, monstrous legislative session that's coming up. Yeah, absolutely. So, yeah, that's really an opportunity for you and for your team to hear from individuals and from families to see, like, what exactly they need, how you can advocate on their behalf. Like, that that intersection is incredibly important. Um, I think for myself, you know, as someone who went to public health school and got my master's. And we learned a lot about like how to not literally always translate certain things, but translation in a way that makes it easier for folks to understand, whether that be through social media or through a newsletter or through an image or an infographic, right? Like not everyone is going to be the same when it comes to their ability to digest information. And it's really important to make it as accessible and open as possible in order for for that information to get to them. And so you're able to advocate properly on their behalf, I imagine. We try our best. (laughs) Yeah. Interested in experimenting with anal sex? Here are 10 things to know before bottoming with expertise from a doctor and anal surgeon at Future Method. Number one, lube is a bottom's best friend. Nothing beats the slickness and endurance of silicone. Number two, there are many types of lube out there, but not all of them are great for your butt. The three types you should avoid are warming lubes, desensitizing or numbing lubes, and spit. Number three, there's a proper way to stretch your hole before your bottoming debut. 
People talk about introducing toys into foreplay and self-play, but they also serve a very important purpose, dilating and maintaining your hole, both to aid opening and strengthening of the skin and muscle so that you can maximize your pleasure and minimize your risk of injury. Number four, douching with water or enemas isn't good practice. Enter the future method anal douche powder packs, a first of its kind solution you can take on the go to help you feel confident and ready before you bottom. Number five, it's not only okay to speak up, but it's imperative for the health and safety of everyone involved. While initial discomfort may be present, if anything hurts, stop. Want to hear the rest? Go to futuremethod.com to learn more and don't forget to use code SEXEDWITHDB for 15% off their amazing products. What do I love about my Freya? The incredible premium razor and clitoral vibrator in one discreet product? Strap in, it's a long list. I love that when I'm already in the shower getting clean, it's super easy for me to grab my Freya and give myself immediate pleasure. No need to get right out of bed, clean my toy, and get out of the mood. As soon as the mood strikes, my Freya is right there to play with. I love how strong it is and that it has six vibe modes to get me feeling the right kind of way. I love the smooth, clean shave it gives. I also love how discreet and easy it is to travel with. I've personally taken Freya on my vacations and have been able to leave it in the shower even if other people are around, like it's my fun little secret. Use code SEXEDWITHDB to get 20% off your Freya. And for a limited time, enter to buy one Freya and get one for your bestie for free. Enter to win at highfreya.com slash sexedwithdb now. And follow Freya on IG and TikTok at Crave Freya. Let me tell you about one of my favorite sex toy shops out there. Lion's Den. If you haven't heard about Lion's Den before, I can't wait to tell you all about them. Lion's Den first opened its retail facility in Columbus, Ohio in 1971. That's right, over 50 years ago. Since then, they have grown to more than 50 outlets throughout the U.S., building its reputation on high-quality products, low prices, and a knowledgeable sales staff. Their staff are also sexual wellness experts who can help you find the perfect toy. One of the many things I love about Lion's Den is that they advocate for a sex-positive perspective on intimacy and sexual well-being, and strive to break the stereotypes and stigma surrounding sex by providing comprehensive educational resources to empower everyone to enjoy life to the fullest. They're simply amazing. Lucky for you, Lion's Den is giving my listeners an exclusive discount of 15% off your purchase in-store and online with code SEXEDWITHDB at lionsden.com. What are you waiting for? Get your amazing Lion's Den toy now. Okay, switching gears a little bit, as we kind of chatted about offline, you know, we on this podcast haven't really specifically talked about immigrant detention centers and reproductive health care that is or is not happening in those spaces. So I really would love to hear from you a little bit about that reality for pregnant people in those spaces. And, you know, especially for Latinas or Latinx folks who are specifically, you know, denied this access to abortion care and prenatal care. Um, Maybe it's period care. You know, there's a lot of needs that folks with uteruses and women identifying people and femmes have in those spaces all the time. So regardless of which spaces they're in, right? But if they are existing in those spaces, it's particularly pertinent that they receive that care. But I'd love for you to kind of give us maybe a little bit of background on this issue and like share what's happening on the ground in these spaces. Yeah, absolutely. 
So it can look a lot of different ways. And so really detention centers are under different sort of regulations and guidelines. And I will always say that, you know, all of these centers operate under DHS. They can be also privately funded, but they are very, very unregulated beasts, I will Mm. say. So the policy can look very, very different from what we are hearing from top officials to what is actually happening on the ground. And so communication is often very, very difficult. So sometimes we hear things that they say about, you know, people who come in have regular healthcare screenings and then when before they leave, they get healthcare screenings. And a lot of times the folks that we work with come out and they're like, we've never been checked for anything. We've never been offered anything. And this is also including reproductive healthcare access. Abortion access is also something like on a completely different page because it really is up to perhaps like a certain official that's in charge. Um, So like, for example, we also have ORR, which is the Office of Refugee Resettlement, and they take care of people who are undocumented who may be underage. And we've had cases where people who are underage are trying to seek access to abortion care. And it may be that the head of ORR does not want to facilitate that transportation or those discussions, and it's up to advocates and it's up to attorneys to try to facilitate those services. And, you know, we've had a lot of different experiences and and some of them, you know, people have been able to get out and access that healthcare. And on the other side of the coin, there is such a rampant lack of reproductive healthcare within detention facilities where people have had miscarriages, people have not been able to access abortion care or any sort of preventative care. And so it is always very, very, very difficult work. I will say it is one of the most difficult aspects of my job, but we have to continue advocating for people. And and hopefully we really want to just stress that as much advocacy as we do to improve conditions within detention facilities, a cage is still a cage at the Mm. end of the day. And what people need the most is that freedom to be able to make their own healthcare decisions outside of jails, outside of detention centers, outside of holding facilities. And so we really want to continue doing that work, always at the intersection of immigration and reproductive health care. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, obviously, not only is time of the essence, just in general, when you're in those detention centers, I can imagine, um, as I'm sure they are not pleasant to be in and very traumatic in some cases, But if you are in need of an abortion, time is especially of the essence. And I can only imagine how challenging it must be for someone in that situation if they don't speak English, right? If they don't speak the language, if they have to go up the ladder to reach those people in charge to get that transportation, to get that medication abortion if they're under, you know, 11 weeks pregnant, to get that lawyer or that advocate to really advocate on their behalf I imagine that's another added layer of challenge. And it's just terrible. That's terrible that people don't have the access that they need and especially awful that it's happening in a space for them where other rights of theirs are also currently being stripped away. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, this isn't just a conversation about detention centers, but we've also done a lot of work with deportation defense cases and what that means for reproductive justice. So one of the activists who works with us, her name is Eva Chavez. She was put under, you know, notice to appear in court and she was 
going to be put in deportation proceedings. And this isn't just like a conversation of this person who was going to be deported, but this was a case of family separation. If she was to be deported, her child would have no one to take care of him. Absolutely no one. And this was a child who did have special needs. And so we often embark in those conversations and in those cases of, you know, what does immigration or what does deportation defense look like under reproductive justice? And that means the ability for people to be able to parent their children in healthy environments without the fear of family separation, without the fear of deportation. And so honestly, a big chunk of our work is also balancing that and having folks get some stability from the immigration enforcement that happens so much at our borders. Totally. Yeah, that's a real, you literally just answered my next question, which is like how immigrant justice and reproductive justice are related and correlated. I mean, I'm sure that's one way, right? Could you maybe talk us through a couple other ways or ways in which that, you know, our listeners might not have realized that these two are very strongly related? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, not just the deportation defense cases that we work on. I mean, we also did have another deportation defense case of a father who was in detention care, uh, detention facilities, and we managed to get him out, you know, but in lack of access to healthcare in general. But there is such like an intersection of these issues that people may not realize. And sort of, it's important to set that like foundation of what that looks like in the Rio Grande Valley. And so here, after multiple restrictions and the overturning of Roe, we have zero abortion clinics. And, you know, we don't have any abortion clinics left in the state of Texas that are operating to provide people the abortion that care that they need. at all? Yeah, we, we don't. Uh, so in 2013, we had legislation that basically closed a lot of clinics in the state of Texas. And so the state of Texas was left with way less clinics than they had before. But in the Rio Grande Valley, we had two and we were left with one. So this is a region of over a million people that were basically being serviced by this one abortion clinic in the Rio Grande Valley. And, you know, the Rio Grande Valley is a very special place in a way where we have a lot of different layers. We have, you know, lack of critical infrastructure. We have, you know lack of like transportation. And we also have interior immigration checkpoints 100 miles in. So basically, the Rio Grande Valley is surrounded by immigration checkpoints that prevent people who are undocumented from ever leaving those areas. And so people who are undocumented are subject to whatever care the state is offering, especially in the Rio Grande Valley. And so this conversation about people being able to travel to other states for the care that they need, as difficult as it is, was non-existent in sort of the planning that we went under because a lot of the folks that we were working with were unable to leave the Rio Grande Valley. And so after the overturning of Roe, we were left with zero clinics, but it was a long sort of like strategic thing to get to the point where we were at right now. And so even though we've been talking about, you know, Roe is going to be overturned and we've had all of these different regulations under Roe that were still, you know, allowed to continue, even though Roe v. Wade was legal, you know, it is much more complicated when you add that immigration layer. And so we had another bill called SB4 that passed several years ago that was sort of like sort of a copycat with some differences from Arizona's show me your papers law. Mm. And it enabled police officers to act as immigration agents. And so we had much more police presence in the Rio Grande Valley. We have a lot of different enforcement mechanisms. We have border patrol, we have ICE, we have police, we have national guard. 
it is not an exaggeration when we say this is a militarized zone because the governor and the state government continue to use the Rio Grande Valley as sort of like a litmus test, a political playground for immigration enforcement programs. Wow. And so a lot of the calls that we were getting were people who were afraid to go to their healthcare appointments, people who were scared to go to their preventative you know, care screenings because there was border patrol in the way, because there was border patrol parked along their routes. And so it took a lot of different trainings and opportunities, but it's definitely a problem that still persists today because it's not going away. Wow. Yeah, that is extremely intense. That makes a lot of sense how you're saying that immigrant justice and reproductive justice are related just by the way that these folks are policed in their areas. Like you said, not able to get to their appointments, not able to do what they need to do uh, in order to live a happy and healthy and autonomous life. So you mentioned the Texas governor. (laughs) Um, (laughs) We... uh, We have an election coming up, and I would love for you to talk about how folks who are listening right now and who have friends listening right now who might have friends or family who vote in Texas can impact reproductive justice access and really like what's at stake in November. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think one thing that I always stress for people who are going to vote is to vote for the right candidate. We have candidates who may not support reproductive justice that may be on the Democratic ticket. We have candidates who may not support reproductive justice who may be on the Republican ticket. You know, it's just voting for the right candidate that has the right values in place and, you know, uh, has vowed to work for Texas communities. And so it's super important for people to get out and vote. And also one added layer that I always like to talk about when people ask me about elections is you know, we absolutely have different avenues and paths of change that we want to accomplish and how we want to see that change, right? But a lot of people also use other different avenues to accomplish the change that maybe they feel the electoral government doesn't suffice or doesn't answer those needs. And so for people who we work with, for people who are undocumented and cannot vote, we want to stress that their voices are just as important Mm. as everyone else in the state of Texas. And so you know, as we explore all of these different issues and, you know, as we embark on this like post-row reality for everyone, I really like to ask people, like, what do they envision for the future of reproductive healthcare access? Like, what kind of world can you dream of where the sky is the limit, where people have access to abortion care, regardless of their immigration status, regardless of their income level, because all of these things existed under Roe v. Wade and it was okay. Right. So what kind of world can we envision, you know, where a court decision, a legislative decision, someone in power at our state government doesn't revoke our right or our access to abortion care, not just when we need it, but when we want it, you know, from one day to the next. So what does that world look like for people? And I think that's just a part of the conversation that we have here, you know, on the field and at the work that we do as just different avenues for change. That's incredibly important. I really appreciate you naming that when we're talking about voting, undocumented folks can't vote. And that is a right that they do not have. There are other folks who are formerly incarcerated who can't vote. You know, there are a lot of people who have their rights taken away when it comes to voting. So I just, I do really appreciate that call out of like, there are plenty of things that we can be doing on the ground 
while we're also those who are able to can vote for the right candidates, as you mentioned, not on the right, but the correct candidates. And yeah, really, really critical. Nancy, thank you so much for joining us. We have a couple more questions. This one is kind of one that we always ask folks, and I know it's hard sometimes to boil it down to one thing, right? But if you could share like one key takeaway with our listeners when it comes to immigration justice, reproductive justice, immigrants accessing abortion, like what what would be maybe like that one thing that you really want to make sure everyone knows? Oh, that, that is know, it's hard. That is tough. Um, or the first thing that you think of. Well, I think something that I think about a lot as we're embarking in this work is how people may make the assumption that immigration enforcement programs do not affect them because they are citizens. Mm. But the way that that enforcement mechanism has been working in a state like Texas is that even though you are not undocumented, immigration enforcement programs have sort of seeped into criminal justice work. And, you know, we might see a trend of that. So it's, it's something that keeps me up at night is, you know, how immigration enforcement programs that are at the discretion of our governor are operating in the criminal justice system for people who are undocumented and for people who are not undocumented. And so, you know, we talk a lot of the way that our laws are structured for SB8, for example, is a vigilante system. And it's definitely like this, like different reporting mechanism, but all of the other different abortion restrictions operate under sort of different enforcement mechanisms. So how are sort of immigration enforcement programs that are being created from scratch going to seep into enforcement for abortion restrictions at each state level? That's what keeps me up at night. And I think that's so important for folks to know is how intricate and how these systems of oppression work so closely with each Mm. other, where it's not just immigration enforcement, you know, outright, but it's how is immigration enforcement going to be used for other areas like abortion enforcement for all of these, you know, abortion restrictions. That is an excellent point of kind of like really go back to like the drawing board with all of these things. And if you find that there are abortion restrictions, check out their immigration restrictions because they most likely will parallel in some capacity. Yeah. A friend of mine, she shared this quote from somebody, and I'm going to butcher it. I don't really remember exactly what it is, but it's something along the lines of like, we're all pulling at the threads of like different oppression if we're doing this kind of work. And what we'll find is that it all comes from the same root. Like we all are pulling at different aspects of it and we're made to think that they're separate, as you mentioned, but really it's all coming from the center, which is like power privilege oppression that is existing in kind of one very ugly, I'm picturing like really big ball of tape, right? (laughs) And if we all take a piece, if we all take a piece off, we're unraveling it in our own ways, right? Like you're doing something very specific in Texas. I'm kind of doing this podcast to, to teach young people sex education. Like it's all, it's all unraveling the same beast, as you mentioned before, so I do think that that is a very similar kind of concept that you're explaining of, Absolutely. no, these, these are interrelated. These are, these impact one another. And, you know, the leaders in these spaces in government in particular right now are 
disenfranchising folks and it's not an accident that all of these things are happening, right? Like this is years and years and years of work that the right has been involved in and leading on. And again, it's it's not an accident. This is on purpose yeah. and we really need to be active and be thanking the folks like you and, and other folks who are doing grassroots work, who've been doing this work for a really long time uh, and have been paying attention and have been unraveling that ugly ball of tape, as we're saying. And so I guess like the next question that I have for you is, what do you recommend for people in the state of Texas or just other people in America to do when it comes to fighting back against this oppression to unravel their little ugly piece of tape in their part of the world? Yeah. I mean, I think it's such an important question and it's something that doesn't have a straightforward answer. And I know that people are looking for that like tangible directions. Direct, yeah, that like tangible piece of action or direction or guidance. And, you know, it's not an easy answer because it may not be what people like to hear. But, you know, we're entering this sort of reality that a lot of states have already been living under. But we're entering this reality that's probably going to last for a long while. This is going to be a marathon. It's not going to be a race. And I think that people need to look towards their community for the answers towards how. Mm to stay invested in this fight. And I will go back to what I was saying before, like we have this blank canvas to work with on what reproductive access looks like. And the sky is the limit. What world can you create that will absolutely ensure that everyone, everyone has access to abortion care, regardless of, you know, all of these different types of things. And I think that you know, working together in coalition and working together cross movement, working together, you know, past our artificial borders towards guidance towards the Mexican accompaniment networks or the accompaniment networks that have been doing abortion work in Latino America, because, you know, they have plenty of experience working under these types of restrictions. Like what world can we work on together where people have access to all of these different types of services? And I want folks to explore and ask themselves that question and what that work will look like. Because, you know, we're in it for the long run. We're still around. We're still going to fight. It's just going to take a while, you know? Totally. Yeah. I love this answer also of like, don't reinvent the wheel. Like there is someone near you who has been doing this for a lot longer than you have. Go volunteer with them. Go donate your dollars to them. Like that is definitely the the way to do it. And I I, I do feel like it's empowering this prompt of like, what's your dream world, right? Rather than overwhelming, because you're right, like, we do have the opportunity to rewrite it now, which is really powerful. Nancy, yeah, this has been really absolutely. cool and wonderful getting to know you. Um, I have one you. last question, which is, you know, like, what's next for you? Where are you headed? And where can our listeners find and follow you and the Latina Institute? I will still be doing my work in Texas. That's probably not going to change anytime soon, but um, you can definitely get caught up in all of my work. We have a website, latinainstitute.org. Um, we also have our Twitter accounts and I'm at ngardenastx on Twitter. So I regularly update with plenty of things, Texas, abortion and immigration related. So folks are more than welcome to follow. We also have newsletters, happy to connect on all of that. But 
yeah, uh, I mean, this work is just starting and I said I was in it for the long run. So that's what that's what it's going to be as exhausting as it can get sometimes, which I will admit this work can get exhausting, mm-hmm. but I'm accountable to the community here in the Rio Grande Valley. So that work has to continue and it's going to continue. Ah, very, very meaningful. Thank you so, so much for being here. It's been such a pleasure to talk to you. Absolutely. Likewise. Thank you for having me. Our creator, host, and executive producer is me, Danielle Bezalel, aka DB. Our co-producer and communications lead is Catherine Cohen. Our co-producer is Brian Peoples. Our social media intern is Sarah Kelly. Our music theme is by Hook Sounds. Thank you so much to our featured guests, partners, and our listeners. Want to advertise with us? Email us at sexedwithdb at gmail.com. For more sex ed content, follow us on IG at sexedwithdbpodcast and on TikTok at sexedwithdb. See you next time.